Trinity Park Church, good morning. I want to take this opportunity to welcome uh, any visitors that we have with us. Thank you for joining. Maybe for those who are joining, maybe for the first time online, we're glad you're here. Um, we are going to sing of the love of Jesus Christ. Um, let's make this our refrain. Let's rejoice in what our Heavenly Father has done. To that end, I want to read these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This will be our call to worship. Um, you can find this in your bulletin if you'd like to open that up, or you can also find it at trinityparkchurch.org. Please take a look with me as I read aloud. And let's be reminded of this love of Christ that controls us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen. Would you pray with me for a moment? Lord God, thank you for this privilege to worship. And thank you again for this reminder that it is the love of Christ that controls us. Lord, I do pray that as we come wherever our hearts may be, that you would remind us of this love that controls us. Remind us that we experience new life in Christ Jesus. Remind us, Lord, that the old man is gone away and the new man has come, that because of your finished work on the cross, we can sing of this love which totally transforms us. And so, Lord, I pray that if we come with weary hearts, if we come burdened by the weight of sin, would you remind us today, O oh God, that the power of sin has truly been broken in Jesus Christ. And we are those who can sing of this forgiveness that we have received. We can sing of this deep, deep love that we receive in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, let's lift our voices as we sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me through him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be 
die for me. Say 
Good morning, uh, Trinity Park. It's really great to be with so many of you this morning. And uh, I think you can all join me in saying that it's great to not be melting in a parking lot for once. So thank you, Jesus, for that. Um, so we're going to move into our confession of sin. And I think it's good to just be reminded, why do we do this? It's so countercultural for us to admit fault and to admit brokenness, but it's actually where we find freedom and peace. And so join me in reading the corporate confession of sin that can be found in your bulletin. Mighty God and loving Heavenly Father, you are our glorious creator who made all things from nothing. You gave mankind the glory of your image, crowning us with honor and blessing, yet we confess that we have sinned before you, exchanging the glorious light of your love for the darkness of sin and rebellion. Though we know you, we are still lovers of darkness who drift towards sin. Whenever you leave us to ourselves, Father, forgive us. We thank you that our sin and darkness can never overwhelm the shining brightness of your glory and love. We thank you for Jesus, who volunteered to enter our darkness and destroy the power of sin over us. Help us to not live, not for our own glory, but for the glory of the one who gave himself to redeem us. Amen. Take a moment to silently reflect and confess alone. Now hear the assurance of pardoning grace, which comes from 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. So this is the time in our service uh, for our offering. Uh, I want to invite you, it's, you're welcome to go ahead and give at this time. Let's go ahead and stand as we continue to worship God together. And we just sang, we just read in this confession of sin, um, how we recognize that our sin and darkness can never, ever, it can never, ever overtake the glory of God. And so let's sing these words, I need thee every hour as a confession, as a plea to the Lord of our need for him. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I
Trinity Park. My name is Andy Yu. I'm one of the pastors here. I just wanted to uh, make a quick announcement. Um, right after the service from 11.30 to about 1.30, we'll be having a membership lunch at Randy and Kathy Berger's place. Um, so yeah, what is a membership lunch? Well, it is a membership lunch, basically, for those who are interested to join the church or thinking about membership, or perhaps even those who uh, have questions about, you know, what what do what does a church believe and and things like that so it's an opportunity for us to do this coming together and do this over a lunch you know we have not had this for a long time since the pandemic and so this is one of the first that we're having and we're glad that randy and kathy is able to um, host this for us so if you are interested to come you know let us know or let me know um, we'll have food ready for you guys um, and if you're yeah, if you have any more questions about it, just come and talk to me too. Yes. Yes. So it is outside uh, at their backyard, and uh, if you're coming, please bring your chairs. Okay, thank you. Um, today I'm going to be praying a little bit through Isaiah 33. It's a passage that I found a lot of hope in in the last week. And so will you join me in prayer? Lord, the prophet Isaiah writes, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the times of trouble. Lord, and I ask that you would be gracious to us. Be gracious to us by helping us learn to wait for you. Lord, we struggle in times of trouble to turn to you. We're a self-reliant people. At least I'm a self-reliant person. And Lord, I just ask, would you do a work in our hearts and turn them to be centered to you, looking to you for truth and hope, strength and peace. Lord, as we ask you to be gracious, we recognize that you are incredibly gracious to us, lavishing on us just grace upon grace. Lord, we thank you for the air we breathe, the sun we worship under, the provisions you provide, and the millions of ways every day you show up in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you've blessed us and surprised us as a church in the last year. Lord, we thank you that in a year that we've experienced a lot of growing pains as a church and a lot of hardship and a lot of transition, we've also seen you provide in incredible ways. Lord, we thank you for the building behind us. We thank you for how we've seen our church body serve and love one another. We thank you for the 31 community group leaders, including 10 new ones and 10 total groups that are going to be meeting this fall. We thank you for the 30 parents and volunteers uh, who attended the youth ministry meetings and are just invested in wanting to care uh, for our youth. We thank you for the many new families and singles who are attending and interested in joining the church. And we thank you for just where you're working and drawing people towards one another to serve one another and be the body of Christ to one another. Lord, there's so many things that we could thank you for and I pray that you would help us just in a season where things have felt challenging or still feel challenging, would you help us to see them and recognize them? And, and thank you for what you're doing. In verse 5, Isaiah writes, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. 
Lord, we live in anxious times. Whether it's one of the thousand things happening around us in the world, or it's things that are very personal and close in our lives and in our families. There are many things that we fear. There's many things we struggle with. And we thank you that because you are exalted and you dwell on high as God, and you reign and you rule, that unlike the world, even in times of trouble, we can experience stability and peace as we turn towards you. So therefore, we boldly come to lay our cares upon you. Lord, we pray for Aaron Perkins, her grandmother Joanne, who is currently in the ICU, suffering from a blockage in the lower part of her heart. We pray that she'd regain her strength in the next two weeks so that she can have surgery. We pray for the doctors who are caring for her, and we pray for Aaron and Dan and their family, Joanne's family. Uh, we pray that they would experience your presence and care and find hope in your word as they wait. Lord, we pray for uh, the Randall's five-year-old nephew, Wade, who has a MISC as a complication of COVID-19. We pray that you would spare his heart from any long-term effects. We pray for wisdom for the doctors and for energy for his parents who are exhausted and caring for five other children. Lord, we thank you for the improved health of Dave Doolin, who's a friend of the characters, who has been fighting COVID-19. We're grateful that he's been pulled out of the ICU, put on reduced amount of oxygen, and is able to sit up and eat. We're thankful that he seems to be himself, and we pray for a full recovery. Lord, we pray for the Hodges' daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Andrew, who received a foster child placement this last Monday of a one-year-old boy with health issues. Lord, we're grateful that they can serve in this way and serve this child, but we know it's a lot on the top of three boys, ages two to five. And so we pray for endurance, patience, and rest. We pray that you would empower them to love these children well. We pray for Rose and Alex Moulton and their soon-to-be-born daughter, Hazel. We thank you for this child, and we pray that they wouldn't get bumped off the induction list and that both mother and daughter would do well and remain healthy through the final days of pregnancy and delivery. Finally, Lord, we pray for Drew and Lindsay Wilkins' son, Isaac, who's fighting a virus in the ICU. We pray that he would be on the upswing in fighting the virus and that you would heal him. Lord, we pray for the other children as they continue to go through transition and now um, are just being children with their parents and brother in the hospital. And Lord, we pray for Drew and Lindsay. Um, I, I just thank you for the, even their prayer requests. We pray uh, that you would sustain them and help them to trust you. Lord, in verse 22, Isaiah writes, the Lord is our king. He will save us. We thank you, Lord, that you are our king, and you do save, you do heal, and you hear our prayers. Amen. reading today is taken from Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus are faith and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of God. here. Whoa, all right. Good to see all of you here this morning. Um, we're in our a new series this morning, Ephesians, uh, an ancient church in an anxious age. And as Adam did pray, there's a lot of things that we can praise the Lord for, and we're going to do that this morning. But there's also a lot of things going on in our world right now and in our personal lives, which can be very anxiety-producing. But like the Ephesians, which we'll get into in a moment, uh, the Ephesian church was also facing great cultural upheaval as they received this letter. You know, Ephesians is full of just unbelievably beautiful theology articulated by Paul in a way that it's just incredible and it's, it engages the mind. But Paul wanted more than that. He wanted more than just to engage our minds. He certainly wants to do that. He also wants to engage our hearts in our hands. His goal for the Ephesian church is not merely that they would believe and they would be intellectually stimulated by this beautiful piece of writing. That's not his goal at all, in fact. His goal is that they would then take that theology of their glorious position in Jesus Christ and then they would live it out practically with their hearts and with their hands. And so this letter is is beautiful, it's theological, it's also ultimately very practical for us as a church. And I think this is important for us. And this time, it's, it's a very uh, a large temptation that we face as we face anxiety-producing times to ask ourselves the question, and I think this question is being asked by many people right now, do I need to deconstruct my faith? Is my faith in Jesus Christ no longer able to handle, is it no longer sufficient for the needs of the hour. And I would, I would submit to you that if there's ever a time in our lives as American Christians that we need to not deconstruct our faith, but to live in our faith, to not lose our first love, it is now. This is not the time to deconstruct your faith. It's not the time to, to re-examine, try to step outside of all that you've learned and see if you can put together differently. That would be like an athlete, the, the U.S. Open Tennis Championships of this weekend, that would be like an athlete, one of these women who played yesterday, unbelievable match, by the way, men are playing today. It'd be like an athlete being in the intensity of the championship moment and, and thinking to himself, you know what, I'm going to unlearn all the training that I've had. I'm actually going to not play tennis like I've learned to play it. I'm going to go try to do something merely totally creative in this moment. It would be like someone who is a sailor being caught in a hurricane and be like, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll just forget the fact that I know how to sail. I think I'll just do something really different today and see if that works out for us. That is, a, that is an insane way to live life, and we cannot live that way as Christians. I think when, we sit, when we're listening to podcasts, and I've listened to The Rise and Fall of Marcel, a lot of you probably have as well, as we've seen leaders like Ravi Zacharias, as we've seen leaders like Joshua Harris and others, lose their faith or not live according to their faith, 
it can be a temptation for us to say, well, should I even believe this anymore? I'm telling you, this is a time for us to go back to ancient times, to go back to listen to the voice of the Apostle Paul as he speaks to the Ephesians and as to the church at large in this moment. I picked this book for us for at least three reasons, just to lay my cards on the table. So we're moving into this new building soon. That's going to be exciting. And I'm really excited about the building. That's going to be awesome. But I'm much more concerned about the church that will inhabit the building. What kind of a church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that holds on to our theology and lives it out in real practical life like we've been before? Are we going to be a church as a building kind of people? I hope not, although the building will be great. We're also in a pivotal moment in American history. Mark Knoll, uh, who's a Christian uh, historian, um, sociologist, wrote a book called Turning Points. And he chronicles the great turning points of Christianity over the centuries. One person emailed me recently in the church and said, Corey, I never thought I would be living through a turning point. And I think this person is, is astute in their observation. I think we are living in a turning point. I'm not going to, I don't know that I'm going to equate it with like the, the Reformation or the great, the great Awakening. We'll have to see. But I think in our lifetime, this is a moment. And we have to ask ourselves the question, how will we live? Will we be more faithful to Christ or will we turn away from him? And then as a church, along with many other churches right now, we need unity. Not just for unity's sake. Not for a spirit of unity together. No, we need to be united in what we believe, in our position in Jesus Christ, and how we live it out. The last half of this book, much of it is about Christian unity, holding on to those first things. Paul, the last verse in this book, which stands out, 624, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. I think there are a lot of forces at work that could corrupt our faith, our individual faith and our corporate faith, and we need to hold on to the first things. So the way this book is broken down, the first half of the book is our position in Christ. And and in that section, which is the first three chapters, there are two subsections. The first one is we now have new life in Christ. That's that's the first part of of chapter 1 all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Then in chapter 2, 11, verses 3, 20, uh, through verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, it's we now have new community in Christ. So we have new life in Christ, and we have new community in Christ. The second half of the book is broken down, chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5. We now must pursue unity and purity in Christ. What do we do with this new position? We must pursue unity and purity. It's not optional. And then the last quarter of the book, we must now pursue submissiveness and stability in Christ. So these are the themes. This is where we're going in this book as we walk through Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians for 15 weeks. We'll take a break for Advent, so this will take us through most of January 2022. And my hope is that we will be able to deeply experience the gospel through the book of Ephesians. So where are we going this particular morning? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about the struggle that the Ephesian church faced. The struggle that they faced. Then we're going to talk about the saints in Ephesus. What does it mean to be a saint in Ephesus? 
And then thirdly, we're going to begin to talk about our spiritual blessings in Christ or our new position in Christ, but that will take us through next week as well. So let's start out with the struggle in Ephesus. The struggle in Ephesus. Well, Paul begins his letter by saying, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this word apostle is really important for us. To be an apostle, a capital A apostle, we hear that word thrown around sometimes. You know, so-and-so and his wife are an apostle of this church or that church. But what it means to be an apostle, when you read it in the Bible, capital A, is that you speak with one who has authority from God because you have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and God has given you, he has given you the calling and the unique position through the Holy Spirit to be able to speak and reveal God's truth to us. And so what that means for us as we go through the book of Ephesians is that these are authoritative words that are given to us by Paul. These are God's words that are given to us by Paul. And so when we read Ephesians, we have to read not as cynics or as critics, not as those who would stand above God's word and try to pick and choose and like a cafeteria line say, I'll have that meat and I'll have those three vegetables and that's what I believe. No, we don't do that. That's not, that's not how we do theology. That's not how we put theology together. Because Paul's an apostle, because these are God's words, we sit underneath God's word. We sit as servant learners and recipients of God's word. So these words that come to us in Ephesians and in all of the Bible, we have to remember they are authoritative words given to us to believe. And then Paul says, to the saints in Ephesus. Now we'll get to the saints part in just a minute, but I want to talk about Ephesus for just a minute. So we're living in a cultural moment for sure. I mean, for real, we are. But they were too. I think it's easy for us to, to think, wow, what we're experiencing is harder than anything that's ever been experienced by anybody ever. And that's just not true. There's a lot of hard times that the church has been through. This is a hard time. I'm going to give you that. But it's not unique to us. And so we need to learn from the Ephesians church and, and the challenges that they faced. Now, Paul knew their particular struggle very well. Remember, we were in Acts for a long time about three quarters of the last year. And in Acts 19, we learned that Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longer than he spent any other, long, with one church longer than any other time he spent with anyone else. And he knew these people really well. He knew Ephesus really well. Timothy, his protege and son in the, in the faith, also was called to be the pastor at Ephesus. And so there's no doubt they were letter writing back and forth, and so he had a current knowledge of what was going on. And then in Acts 28, if you remember the end of our series, Paul was in Rome, and he was writing letters under house arrest. And Ephesians is one of the letters that he wrote at that time. So Paul is writing this letter, not just thinking about their struggle, but also personally reflecting on his own struggle in prison, and he's writing these words to us, for us, about how to struggle well in applying the gospel. So let's talk about the Ephesian church. What particular struggles did Paul know that they were facing? Well, first of all, we need to understand the size and the diversity of Ephesus. The size of Ephesus. So Ephesus was one of the four or five biggest cities in the world at the time. It had a massive amphitheater that held 25,000 people, which is one of the largest stadiums in the world at the time. 
out of the four major roads in Asia Minor at the time, they all converged in Ephesus. So this was a crossroads of all kinds of different people and belief. They were coming in from the sea and from the land. It was situated on the coast, from the town and the villages into an urban area. So you're talking about a very complex mix of people and relationships all coming together, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, young and old, educated, uneducated, sailors and land, land lovers. Everybody's just together in this, this place and in this church and coming to Jesus. And they're experiencing this together. So you have the size and diversity. You also have the spiritual warfare and the sin in Ephesus. So Paul in chapter 6 will include the longest section in all of his writings about spiritual warfare. So we don't know exactly all the ins and outs of what Paul was seeing, but we know that he attributed a lot of their struggle to not warring against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and, and rulers of the air and all the things that are going on in the spiritual realms. And he felt like it was really happening in Ephesus. There was an element of spiritual war there. There's also sin going on in Ephesus. It was known for various forms of paganism. And they had a, a, an assortment. They had sophisticated pagans, and they had sleazy pagans, I would say. Okay, so the sophisticated ones are written about in 1 Timothy 4, where Timothy is warring against this group where they were, they were, um, they were putting forth a theology, a way of explaining spirituality a, apart from God. It was called asceticism, the harsh treatment of the body, and, and all this stuff. So there were all these philosophies that were competing for the minds and hearts of people. And that was one element of the sin that they were battling with. But there was also just this underbelly, this undercurrent going on in Ephesus as you had the intellectuals fighting it out. You just had a real level of spiritual corruption that was going on in Ephesus. Sin, sexual sin in particular, was rampant in Ephesus. There's still an ancient sign in Ephesus today on the streets coming from the ancient docks that directed sailors to the brothels. Right now, if you visit Ephesus, you can find it. And Ephesus is also home to the Temple of Artemis, which at its peak size, it's one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's five times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. This was a massive structure. And imagine this, 90% of the Ephesian people are doing something, some kind of, of religious ritual, some kind of socioeconomic connection to this temple. And in, woo, all right. And in this temple, in, as part of the worship in the temple, they incorporate prostitution. So just to give you an idea, this is not just happening out there on the streets as the sailors come in. This is, sexual sin is indoctrinated into the people's mindset of what it even means to be religious. So you're talking about a real challenge, a real challenging cultural situation for Paul. So how did he and how did Timothy face this challenge as church planter and pastor there? Well, Paul continued teaching the scriptures daily, it says in Acts 19, in the hall of Tyrannus. He would daily teach the scriptures so he didn't back down. And his ministry brought opposition from the community, from leaders, and even from demons. And we read about in Acts 19, 11 through 20, that there is overt spiritual warfare happening when Paul is ministering. And the teaching and his ministry led to life change that impacted the culture 
so that those who practice magic arts surrounding the worship of Artemis started converting to Christ and burning all of their books. So there's a massive book burning going on, and, and the actual socioeconomic and religious life in Ephesus starts being changed and subverted through the gospel. So I don't want you to be fooled by, as we get into a moment, this beautiful high theology that Paul gives to us. I don't want you to be fooled by that, thinking that they were all just hanging out in the hall of Tyrannus, you know, like some sort of a French salon where they're just like thinking all about the depths and, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. That is not what these people are doing. They are taking theology and they are rigorously practicing it in life. Tony Merida said this, the church in Ephesus was birthed in the midst of opposition. In a lot of ways, this church is being rebirthed right now after COVID and moving into this building in the midst of great opposition. We have an opportunity to learn from what Paul says. So that was their struggle. Their struggle was great in Ephesus. And in the midst of that struggle, Paul issues a call, a call to the saints in Ephesus. And that's the second point this morning. He says, the saints in Ephesus and are or who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this shows us that the, the church in Ephesus, the saints in Ephesus, saw themselves as having a double identity, having a dual citizenship. On one hand, they're related to God. They are saints, and that means, as saints, they have been set apart by God. They have been made holy. We'll get into that in a minute. Holy through the work of Christ. Paul, in this letter, mentions union with Christ more than any other letter that he writes, by far. 36 times he talks about what it means to be united with Christ. And next week, we're going to really camp out there a lot, union with Christ. But these saints need to see themselves as united to Jesus Christ. They're united with Christ positionally, and that means they're called to follow him practically in this challenging time. But this phrase, saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, is not just a statement of their relation to God. It's also a statement of their relationship to the world. John Stott puts it this way. These saints have two homes because they equally reside in Christ and in Ephesus. Stott goes on, many of our spiritual troubles arise when we fail to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We either pursue Christ and withdraw from the world, or we become preoccupied with the world and forget that we are in Christ. This is so important, how we see ourselves as Christians. We are citizens of two kingdoms. When I was in training at Redeemer City to City, under Tim Keller, we were honored to be invited and to, be, uh, to, to have a group go up, a delegation go up and learn several times. It was a great uh, time to learn. But they drew a diagram within Redeemer City, the city, where they had a, a bigger outer circle that was described as the first city. And then they had a smaller inner circle inside that bigger circle called the second city. The second city is the church. And the first city is the world. And we as Christians live inside the second city, but we also live inside the first city. And as members of the church, the difference between us and the world around us is not that we don't have the same struggles. We have the same struggles. We, we might have moved to Cary or to the Triangle for the same reasons, a job transfer, an opportunity for our kids to go to good schools. We might have moved here 
uh, because of, of we love the outdoors, the proximity to the airport if you need to fly for business. Like we might have moved here for the same reasons. We might struggle with the exact same things. In fact, a lot of times we do. We might struggle with what does it mean for us to love our wives and husbands? What does it mean for us to walk through this pandemic together? What does it mean for us to love our children and to try to help them in any way that we can? What does it mean for us? We ask the same basic questions. How do I struggle against these sinful impulses that war against my soul? The difference between the second city and the first city is that we turn in a different direction. It's not that we don't struggle just as much. It's that we believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to those struggles. And so we turn to the gospel. We are not better than anyone in the first city. No, no, no. In fact, Christians would need to say, you know, perhaps I'm the worst. Perhaps I am the weak and the poor and the blind and the lame. Perhaps I'm the one who needs to go into the party because I need Jesus. So we simply turn in a different direction. In that turning in a different direction to Jesus, John Stott describes this as the, the act of double listening. Let me describe this to you. What he means by this is this. As Christians, we need to have our ears attuned to Jesus Christ and what he says about us. We need to be thinking about the gospel of grace. What does God say? So that's one side of listening. We listen to Jesus. But we also, because we're citizens of that first city, or we're citizens of the world as well, we also keep our ears attuned to what our neighbors are saying. What are they struggling with? And so Stott would say you need to live with your Bible in one hand, and your Christian relationships in one hand, and you need to live with your news app in the other. He wouldn't say that because they didn't have news apps when he was writing it, but he might say your, your Wall Street Journal or your New York Times, and you need to be listening to those who are in your community, in the world. Why? Because we're called to be salt and light in this world. Because we would love to see the second city grow and impact more of the first city. We would love to see this world redeemed, continually redeemed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says saints in Ephesus. As a believer, you need to definitely understand that you are a saint. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that the rest of today. You are a saint. You are set apart. You are united with Christ. You are holy. You are blameless through the work of Jesus Christ. But he did that for you for a reason. He did it for you so that, yes, you could be secure in your position, but that you could live redemptively listening and loving your neighbor and inviting them in to the second city so that they would know Jesus Christ. Listen, they, that may not sound like Christian rocket science, but actually that posture toward the world as seeing yourself as a saint in Ephesus is actually extremely countercultural right now, even within Christianity. There are many who would say, once you're a Christian, you need to turn your back on the world. You need to get into a holy huddle. You need to protect yourself from the world. There's an element of that that's true. But we're actually called into the second city so that we can love the first city because we ourselves are still citizens of that city. Our redemption in Christ is individual. It is communal. It is also cosmological. Jesus Christ wants to redeem this world. He is certainly interested in redeeming your life and your neighbor's life and he, the lives of those others in this church, but he wants more. He wants the glory. He wants all the glory, and one day he'll have it when the whole world is transformed by him. So we need at this time, more than any other time in your life, you don't 
set your, your faith aside. You don't wait till the world lets up. You don't wait till the pandemic gets better. You don't wait till we get into the new building finally and your kids can have children's ministry. You don't wait until America gets into a better place and is less divided. No, this is the time where you need to live in your new position in Christ, facing the world with loving redemption. And finally, we'll get into today our spiritual blessings in Christ or our new position in Christ. Now, I'm just getting this going. This is a really, really long sentence that Paul wrote. If you're familiar with verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1, this is actually all one big Greek sentence, if you can imagine it. That's a lot in one sentence. It really is. It's a very long sentence. In fact, scholars say there's nothing to compare it to. In all of ancient Greek literature, no one ever wrote a sentence this long that made sense. And so it's actually really challenging to get your minds around it. I mean, Paul is kind of going to another level here a little bit. So we're going to break it down. We're going to go verses 3 through 6 today, and then we're going to do 7 through 14 next week. So in chapter 1, the first thing that we want to see here is this whole statement of our spiritual blessings in Christ. I don't want you to miss this. This is not suddenly a theology textbook. Okay, It's really tempting to just get into your theological grid and start trying to just grind this out cerebrally but I want you to understand that this entire sentence is written by Paul as an expression of praise. He is not merely teaching us theology. Okay? For Paul, this entire expression is, is one of praise to God for what he has done for us. And I want to remind you what I said in the beginning, that if you really want to study theology, you really want to get into your theology, it needs to not just impact your mind, it needs to impact your heart and your emotions and your whole life. That's true Christianity. So make sure as we're going through this that it should be leading us to full-hearted praise in Jesus Christ. When you have a Christianity that is left in the intellect or the mind only and does not engage the heart or the hands, you have something that is very dangerous. You have something that is very unbiblical. We need to be very careful about that. So first of all, it's an expression of praise. Second of all, this is a work of the triune God. Throughout verses 3 through 14, you have the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is mentioned mainly in verses 3 through 6, mainly 3 and 4. The Son uh, in verses 7 through 11, 12. And then the Spirit at the end in 13 and 14. So what you have here, all these blessings that come to us, they do come to us in Christ, in Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, but they come to us, Paul is saying, as an expression of the full work of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father elects us, chooses us, orchestrates the plan of redemption. The Son goes about the work of redemption, actually working that out in the world through his death and resurrection and ascension, and reign, and he'll come again. And then the Spirit applies this work in our hearts. So what you have here in Paul, as we go through this, you're going to see this is a work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The third thing I want to point out to you, as we look at verses 3 through 6, is that we are chosen to be holy and blameless. We're chosen or elected to be holy and blameless 
in God's sight. And this is a really important doctrine for us because the truth of the matter is you and I will struggle. Your faith will go up and down. You will vacillate greatly. You will have moments when you feel like you're really able to live in your faith, and you'll have moments when you really are not able to do it. You'll have moments when you are high and you are worshiping, and you'll have moments where you're anxious and you're depressing. And one of the biggest questions that you need to answer for yourself is, what is the basis of my salvation? How Am I secure? Or, or does God's love for me, does his, does his posture towards me change based on my own personal performance? And praise God, the answer to that question is, no, God, God's attitude, his his perspective toward you, his position toward you never changes based on your, your performance and your actions. And we know that because of the doctrine of election. We're told that we find ourselves here in this position of receiving grace because we were chosen by God to be here. Now, before I get into explaining this doctrine and why it's so important and why Paul leads off with it, I want to recognize that I, I understand this doctrine can cause Division. Um, I understand that the church, the evangelical church, if, if you want to call it that these days, is not united in this doctrine. I get that. In fact, I grew up in a family where the easiest way to ruin a family meal, honestly, was to bring up the doctrine of election. Um, honestly, like I, when I first started learning about the doctrine of election, I was 14. I was reading R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God and the Holiness of God. It really it's a life-transforming idea not the least of which is because there are certain sections of Scripture, like this one, Ephesians 1, Romans 9 and 10. I mean, there are some like really core places in Scripture where the doctrine of election is, is mentioned. Not just mentioned, it's actually fundamental. And for so long, I felt like I had to leave those parts of the Bible out because I just couldn't embrace the doctrine of election. But understanding that not only can I read the whole Bible and it fits together and that election is a big part of that, but that God loves me not based on my performance was actually revolutionary for me in my life. And I wanted to tell people about it. Now, let me be honest with you. The, the way I talked to people about election when I first learned about it, I was like an MMA cage fighter. I mean, my goal was to make you believe that this was true because I understood it. I was seeing it and I was not kind. And so I did not help when I was at the dinner table and I would just bring this up willy-nilly with my parents. I will say, though, I'm not sure even, I am sure, actually, right now, I still can't bring up this doctrine. So I realize that no matter how you do it, it can be very challenging, and I get that. But I also want to submit to you that what is controversial or confusing about election cannot be whether or not it is taught in Scripture. There, there is a lot of mystery involved in the doctrine of election. There really is. Why did God choose me? That's a really amazing question. Why did he choose me and not choose other people? That's a mystery. Truly, it is. Why did God choose anyone? It's a mystery. I don't know. Those are all mysterious questions. What is not mysterious is whether or not the Bible teaches that God did choose people. So the mystery is in the mind of God. Why is this his way? Yes, we can ask him that one day. But what is not mysterious is whether or not this is the mind of God because it's told to us in passages of Scripture like Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and 10, passages that you actually can't live without as a Christian. You can't take these verses out of the Bible. You don't want to. 
You need to have them there because they integrate the whole passage, which are fundamental to our faith, and the doctrine of election itself is actually, it's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. Let me tell you why there's four reasons why it's important. Let me tell you why there's four reasons. There's many more than four, but I'm just going to narrow it down to four. Four reasons why the doctrine of election is important, and not just in general, but as saints amidst the struggle of life, why is this doctrine important? This doctrine is important because as saints amid the struggle, we will be humble before God and others. Ironically, the MMA cage fighting way of talking about election contradicts the doctrine itself. (laughs) I mean, actually, if there's a doctrine in the Bible that should make us humble as Christians, it's that God chose us. And not because he saw foreseen faith in us or saw something good we were going to do that were better than other people. Not at all. He just chose us. It's incredibly humbling that God would love us like that. Why in the world, God knowing all about me that he does, more than I even understand myself, that he would love me? We should be the most humble people in the world as Christians. The second reason why it's important is as saints amid the struggle, we will praise God. We will praise God. We don't praise God enough. I don't praise God enough. But as I think about the fact that God loved me before the foundations of the world, that in his heart, he, he chose to love me and to care about me, that should, that should bring effusive praise into our lives, that we would be loved by God. We should be those who praise the Lord who knows us. We deserve to be damned, but instead, by grace, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Do you realize the contrast there? It's incredible. We should be given nothing, or even worse, we should be punished for our sin, but we're given every spiritual blessing, and that's the gospel. The third reason why it's the doctrine of election or being chosen by God is so important is that as saints amid the struggle, we will be secure in our salvation. Do you feel secure in your salvation? Do you feel like that your performance, do you, do you ride the seesaw like your kids at the park? You go up and down and all around the merry-go-round of life. Or do you feel secure in your, your being loved by God? Because what this teaches us is this, is that before the foundations of the world, which means before you had the chance to even get born, much less do anything at all, that God had already secured grace to you. That means that your salvation is not even contingent upon your faith. It's not even contingent upon how you live or act. God cannot love you more, and he will not love us less. He's not not looking for us to, to perform for him so we get a trophy at the end. He just loves us. He just loves us, and we're secure in our salvation. That is life transforming. We don't have to live with a performance basis. In fact, I would encourage you to do everything you can not to import performance-based living into Christianity. Don't import performance-based living into Christianity from the world. It's not Christian. And then finally, the fourth reason is, as saints amid the struggle, we will enjoy God's love. It says, in love he predestined us. And then at the end of the section it says, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did God choose us? The only answer I have is because he loves us. Because he loves us. How does this work? I don't really, I don't really know. Maybe it's something like a parent-child relationship. 
Whereas as children, we are so concerned that our parents would see our performance and that they would say, I love you and I'm proud of you. And they would acknowledge that. But all the while as parents, as a good parent, we know that actually we love our kids not based on their performance, but because we simply love them. Now, you take that in a good parent and whatever good aspects of parenting we have, and you apply that to God to infinity, that's true, that God doesn't change his mindset toward us based on our performance, but he really loves us, truly loves us. And a lot of this is wrapped up in the doctrine of adoption, which we're going to talk about next week, which is mentioned in verse 5. I get that. We'll spend a lot of time there next week. I'll close with this. Why does God do this? I mean, how is this his plan? Well, multiple times throughout these verses, and even in the next part of the long sentence, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones this week, a commentary on this. He puts it this way. He says, perhaps the greatest, most encompassing expression of our sinful condition as human beings is that we do not live any longer for the praise of God's glory. God created us to live for him, to bring him glory, but sin wrecked and rewired our hearts and minds so that now we live not for God, but for ourselves. And so Jones goes on to paraphrase and he says, and so it makes sense that in order to redeem us, if the biggest, the biggest thing going on, the biggest problem that we have to describe, to describe us is that we do not give the glory to God that he deserves. In fact, instead we live for our own glory. What God has to do in redemption is much more than just redeem our hearts. It's bigger than that individually. What God is doing is he is rewiring us so that we will want to live and we will live for the praise of God's glorious grace. You know, we don't only live in an anxious age, we also live in an arrogant age. And there's a relationship between those two things as well. The more we focus on ourselves, the more anxiety-producing it will be. But the more we focus on the Lord and how much he loves us in Christ, the more we will be able to trust him. You know, for me, that was a massive epiphany that my biggest problem growing up and still oftentimes today is that I'm way too self-concerned, and that can come across an arrogance or self-pity. But what God has done for me in Jesus Christ is he's given me himself to be focused on, who is actually worthy of my life, worthy of my glory, and all of my efforts. So we live for the praise of God's glorious grace. So my question for you as saints living in an anxious age is this. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know your position in Christ was secured to you before you were ever born when God chose you for salvation? Do you know the new purpose he has been calling you to in Christ, this new purpose of glorifying him? In the halls of your school, do you know who you are? Do you know that you're in Christ when you're walking around your elementary school or your middle school or your high school or your college? Do you know that you're chosen, that you're loved, that you're forgiven, set apart for God's glory? When your friend group and your family members are in a fight about COVID, do you know who you are? Do you remember who you are? Do you know that you're in Christ? Do you know that you have been called for the purposes of his glorious grace? 
Late at night when you're scrolling on Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, do you know who you are? Do you know you're in Christ, chosen, loved, forgiven, adopted? When you're reading discouraging news, working on that really hard and important work presentation, do you know who you are? Do you know that your identity is not wrapped up in the news and it's not wrapped up in your own performance at work or at home? Do you know who you are? There is no more fundamental question that you need to have the answer to right now in life than knowing who you are, knowing your position in Jesus Christ. We are called to fight the good fight. We're called to struggle in the midst of this difficult age, this anxiety-producing age. And the first thing we need to know is who we are in Jesus Christ. We'll work on that more next week when we talk about union with Christ. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that in Christ you have provided a new position for us where we are now holy and blameless in your sight. We thank you that in love you predestined us to adoption as sons, to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, this is truly, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but my prayer right now is that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe and go deeper into and to trust who you say we are, this new identity that you have given to us. And I pray for every child, for every teenager, for every young adult, and, and those who are uh, approaching old age, I pray for all of us that we would anchor our identity in this moment in you, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for the gospel. We thank you that we're not left alone. But you, far from leaving us alone, came near, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have given us yourself. I pray that we would live in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together as we respond in song. So much truth for us to ponder here. One question that Corey posed to us is, do I know who I am in Christ? Do I know who I am in Christ? One who is chosen, loved, and forgiven. Let's lift our voices now in response as we sing to the praise of his glorious grace.
directly after the service at Randy and Kathy's house. If you need directions or the address, I'd love to give that to you. love to have you come if you're interested in that as well. Please receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today. World without end. Amen. Go in peace.